when I actually give the presentation, my audience is bored. When I'm in the audience, I'm bored. A lot of this was grounded in user research. We spent a lot of the early days of the company just talking to lots of people we knew who make presentations. And in particular, people were saying, I used to spend 70% of the time in a presentation on the formatting and 30% on the content. And with Gamma, I feel like I can spend 80% on the content and 20% on the formatting. And I'm spending less time overall. Welcome to Building with AI, a show where we host conversations with world-class business leaders in AI to uncover tactical advice that helps you build and scale better AI products. I'm your host, Harun Chaudhry. Today, I'm here with John Narona, the co-founder at Gamma, an AI-powered medium for presenting ideas. During our conversation, John discusses the origin story of Gamma and how the company first began experimenting with AI to improve onboarding. He goes on to discuss how that initial experiment set them up to become one of the most recognizable AI native companies in the market. He discusses valuable lessons he's learned through building with AI, including the importance of interactive prototypes and investing heavily in UX. Before we dig in, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Autoblocks, the AI optimization platform product teams use to create world-class AI experiences. So you just launched V0 of your AI feature or product. What's next? Autoblocks unlocks an intuitive yet powerful optimization workflow that helps you continuously understand, improve, differentiate your AI-powered products. Understand how your users interact with your product by connecting user activity to what's happening under the hood of your application. Improve your product thoughtfully and iteratively. Integrate testing of your AI products into your CI workflow and run A-B tests to see what changes are driving great user outcomes. Differentiate your AI products with powerful fine-tuning workflow that lets you turn product usage data into training data. Get started with Autoblocks for free at autoblocks.ai now. Back to the episode. John, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to be here. So I'm excited to dig in. I'm excited to chat about Gamma and how you're deploying AI and how you're improving the AI capabilities over time. But to kick things off, do you mind giving an introduction of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is John Narona. I'm one of the co-founders of Gamma. We started Gamma about three years ago, so we're still relatively early on in our journey. Where we started Gamma was we wanted to build an alternative to PowerPoint. Our whole kind of genesis of our idea, starting in the depths of the pandemic, was that having everybody sit around in a room looking at a projector up on a wall and clicking through slides one by one felt very uh, old-fashioned and antiquated. We thought there ought to be a better way. And so our earliest idea was, let's rethink how people present ideas at work. And in particular, let's focus on the audience. So let's think about what it's like to actually sit through a presentation and see, can we make these things more interactive, more engaging? And ideally, could we help you skip the meeting entirely? Our earliest idea was to create something that was kind of a hybrid between a doc and a presentation, partly visual, partly interactive, partly readable. That's where we got our start. But like any kind of startup idea, it's morphed and changed over the years. And in particular, over the last year, we've really deeply incorporated AI. And in doing so, we've kind of unearthed this bigger opportunity we found in just generally using AI to automate all of the annoying parts of creating a presentation. And it turns out there's a lot of annoying parts in making a presentation. In fact, some people would say that all the parts of making a presentation are annoying. We are systematically trying to replace one after another of those with AI. And what would you say is your core job to be done? Is it creating presentations? Is it maybe something a little bit higher level than that? Maybe communicating ideas? 
you know, it's a subtle distinction, but we like to say presenting ideas rather than creating presentations. It's almost the same thing, but for us, the difference is a presentation implies a specific artifact. 20 or so slides, they're all these little 16 by 9 rectangles, and I click through the one by one and sort of talk at you. That's kind of the world we're trying to move away from. Getting some message across is almost this universal thing that we all have to do, whether we are consultants or managers or students or teachers. We all have to sort of take some idea that's maybe partly formed in our head and get it into somebody else's head. And so we're trying to give people the confidence to do that communication without all this busy work and anxiety that comes with a typical presentation. And so you touched on it a little bit, but what about your background inspired you to pursue this as the idea that you were going to start a company around? Well, unfortunately, I've spent a lot of my career making slides. So uh, my background has actually all been in product management. Um, so I worked at Microsoft uh, out of college as a product manager. And then there's a company called Optimizely, which was a smaller startup, and yet still involved uh, a lot of slide making. I think as a product manager, you are constantly having to tell a story and bring people along with a vision. You're constantly sort of like managing up and managing down and managing sideways, trying to keep lots of different people on the same page. And you're often working with these very technical concepts where you're trying to explain some new thing you're trying to build. You're often trying to show, not tell, and create a vision that's compelling for everyone. And so, yeah, I would say every week in that job, I was making presentations. A major part of my job, it was a major part of my success or failure in my job. A good presentation is what would get an idea greenlighted. Frankly, it's what would get me promoted. Uh, that was just the nature of the work. And it's funny because this is not just true for product managers, it's true for many professions. Uh, my co-founder, Grant, has always worked in finance and in banking, and they also just make presentations all day, even though it's for a totally different audience. And so I think the more that we talked and the more we thought about this idea, what really drew us to it was just the potential. It's just this universal activity. I think we've heard that PowerPoint alone has something like 500 million active users every month. Google Slides has another 500 million. So there's like a billion people out there who are making presentations. And that's just presentations. It's much broader if you think about presenting ideas through other media, whether it's writing a document or making a website or just writing down some quick ideas. So we wanted to work on something that had the potential to be really big and broad and also creative. So I think what's neat about this space is that it's this mix of both written and visual communication. I guess what makes it really hard for people to actually make good presentations, but People working on software and especially working on AI, it's a really cool space to be in where you've got potential for imagery and design and writing and structure to all come together. And can you walk me through the timeline, the genesis of Gamma, what the application looked like in the early days, the evolution of the application, and then the point at which AI was introduced? AI was something we always considered, but it was never the focal point of things early on. Uh, we started the company in roughly October 2020, so just about uh, three years before we're recording this now in 2023. And at the time, GPT-3 had actually just come out a few months earlier. And I remember trying out GPT-3 because I'd heard it was cool and it could finish your sentences for you. There was like a glimmer of something there, but it really wasn't that cool, actually. It just it couldn't really do much. And of course, this is years before ChatGPT and everything. And so we were focused on very much building a better manual presentation creation process. So a lot of our early ideas were about the tooling and the editing itself. So we had to build a collaborative visual editor. We took a lot of inspiration from tools like Notion on the writing side, Canva on the more visual design side that made collaborating and building new things really easy. And so we really focused there. I would say also, we had seen a lot of other companies in this space try to be a better presentation maker. And if you think about PowerPoint, which came out over 30 years ago, 
Keynote, which is 20 years old, Google Slides, which is more than 10 years old. There have been several iterations of kind of the same thing that all just promised a somewhat better way of editing to get to the same output. And so our focus was we want to do more than just make a different presentation editor. We want to rethink sort of the format or the medium itself. So what if we broke down the assumptions of what a slide deck is? What if a slide deck didn't have to go just forward and backward, but you can actually dive in and click into different topics? What if the slides in a slide deck weren't necessarily all the same size? You could have some that are shorter because they're brief or some that are taller because they have a lot of stuff. And a lot of this was grounded in user research. We spent a lot of the early days of the company just talking to lots of people we knew who make presentations, which it turns out, again, is like a lot of the people we know. It's just a very common activity. And we just asked them, what do you find frustrating about this? Tell me about the last time you made one of these things. And when people talked about it, it was the same things over and over again that came up. I'm constantly figuring out how to structure my ideas. I'm constantly having to rearrange stuff across different slides to make them fit. I have all these little empty holes on the screen I have to fill with like dumb clip art just so it fits the shape of the rectangle. When I actually give the presentation, my audience is bored. When I'm in the audience, I'm bored. And so we really focused on all of the presenting and creating experience around that. And we spent a year just focusing on building our own take on presenting ideas. And our early tagline for this was write like a doc, present like a deck. You just wrote out your ideas. We would structure them into the right shape. It was responsive, which is the term people use in web design to mean the way the same website can look good on a widescreen or on a phone. So we really focused on that. We wanted something that would work, look good on any size screen without a lot of effort. We kind of launched our first beta version in fall of 2021, so about a year into our journey, and it wasn't that good yet. But we got maybe our first thousand signups or so by using social media and reaching out to our network. And during that time, we also were using the product a ton ourselves. We have really believed from the start that if you're building productivity software, the kind of stuff that people get serious work done in, then you have to live in it yourself. We would write all our documents in Gamma. We would make presentations in Gamma, which a six or eight person startup, you don't make a lot of presentations. And so we made ourselves make presentations just for fun. Every week we would give little TED Talks about whatever topics, like how to make a croissant or why the hats look that way in Korean dramas. And it became a core part of our culture, just constantly presenting to each other to make ourselves use the product. And as we kind of iterated through that process and slowly expanded our beta, we would go from 20 people using the product every week to 30 to 40. So again, not exactly that exciting VC scale growth, but still there was a spark there. And we kept on growing it, kept on expanding the functionality and making it work better and better. Until finally in fall of 2022, so now we're about a year ago, we did our first big public launch of our beta. So uh, we launched on Product Hunt, worked out a lot of the kinks, and it actually was surprisingly successful uh, in my eyes, just because we'd seen pretty small amounts of usage overall. Um, but we ended up being number one product of the day on Product Hunt. We got suddenly thousands of signups, and now we were starting to have hundreds of people using our product every day. That was also exciting. Uh, it was promising, but hundreds still is not exactly a successful startup, uh, especially at this scale. We weren't charging any money yet, so it was still very much a dream, but we were starting to see what was resonating about our products. There were people who were starting to tell us, oh, you're saving me so much time every week. And in particular, people were saying, I used to spend 70% of the time in a presentation on the formatting and 30% on the content. And with Gamma, I feel like I can spend 80% on the content and 20% on the formatting. And I'm spending less time overall. 
And so that was a really useful North Star for us. It let us continue to focus on that core product. The thing about this product was we were not just a new way to make presentations. We were trying to be something more abstract, a new medium for presenting ideas. How do I translate my ideas or my problems into this new thing I'm seeing and understand if I'll get value? And funnily enough, that was actually the question that first led us to try and incorporate AI. It was really about onboarding. We had built this new medium for sharing ideas, and it was foreign to people. And so we wanted a way to basically show someone an example that fit their own use case. And so the kind of original idea we pursued was, could we use AI to create a template for you based on your topic? For example, if you are a consultant and you are making a proposal for a beauty brand, you should be able to type in beauty band proposal and get a really basic, simple template that would just show you, here's what a gamma deck could look like that would communicate this idea. And so we put all of our focus into that. Uh, this was right around the time that ChatGPT had come out. It's also around the time Stable Diffusion had come out. And so suddenly AI had gone from this thing that a few years earlier we had dismissed as like a cute toy to something that was suddenly becoming a lot more powerful a lot more quickly. And so we would just started exploring. We started seeing how good a template could we make using AI. And one of the things we started doing was just using AI to make our own templates manually. We didn't actually release any AI product right away. We started thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, what's the point of having us use AI to make templates when we could just directly provide this to the person who signs up? And you could cut out the middleman of the template. They could just say what they wanted and get a rough draft. And so we really started prototyping. We started trying out lots of different ideas for how this worked. I'm happy to go into more details of what those were. But long story short, I think we prototyped for six months before we had something that we actually felt confident in. And it just ended up blowing up so far beyond what we expected. I think because it, it ended up being much more than an onboarding tool. It ended up being a really powerful way to use AI that went beyond just typing text into ChatGPT. It could help you tell the story. It could help you choose imagery and visuals, and it could help you write out all the copy and it would deliver it to you all as sort of like a finished package. And you would still tweak it from there, but still it was amazing how much utility came from putting all those pieces together. So I'm curious if you could dig into the prototypes a little bit. What did that early part of the journey look like when you're testing things out and seeing whether this was actually feasible or not? Yeah. So, you know, there were many different kinds of prototype. Maybe prototype's not even the right word. They were just prompting. We were just playing with the GPT playground, typing in questions like, make me an outline for a presentation about frogs. And I wanted to have 10 slides and just seeing what we would get. And even learning from that very basic question, some of it was our design team actually modeling out the user experience and just showing it to people. So they were actually just drawing up screens where we'd say, what do you want a presentation about? And et cetera, et cetera. And going through a lot of user testing on those to see what people would get or not get. We really believe that to see these ideas in action, you have to build them out. And so we were building lots of these things and also throwing away lots of these things. I would say the typical lifetime of one of these prototypes was like two weeks. And at a given time, there were, I don't know, maybe three of them in flight. And to give you a sense of the scale, we were a team of about 12 people at the time. Many people were working on different pieces of this and trying out different ideas or talking to potential users and showing them. Moving on to an overall lesson for building with AI, I think even more than building regular software products, building with AI requires making these fully working prototypes where you actually hook up a real AI prompt to a simplified user experience and then try it out with a bunch of examples. 
you can't always just make a Figma mock-up and say that you're set. Or you can't even just describe the idea. You have to sort of put it all together in a working end-to-end idea and just relentlessly use it and dog food it over and over again. I think we're a bit unusual in that our team is very UX design heavy. Our team of 12 have four UX designers. And I think that sort of third ratio is like pretty unheard of, but it ended up serving us really well through this process because in my opinion, the skill that is most valuable in doing this kind of prototyping exploration is UX design. Uh, You want people who are comfortable actually talking to users and building understanding of what people want. Um, You need people who are capable of showing their vision fully end to end, which means they're comfortable using visual tools like Figma to actually mock up UI and everything. And then uh, especially where the really power comes in is when you have people who can both design and code, at least to some degree. So uh, many of our designers actually do code, although not all of them do. Um, And they typically make very simple uh, JavaScript prototypes uh, using a tool called Code Sandbox. So Code Sandbox is basically a way for someone who's not super technical to be able to make simple code prototypes and actually run them and share them online without needing um, to figure out how to deploy servers or run a bunch of code on their computer. Makes it all really easy. And so I would say it's been one of our secret weapons. They were able to just very quickly build interactive prototypes that actually used AI. And of course, our engineers help them. It's a collaboration, right? It's not just designers on their own. It's designers and engineers teaching each other tricks of how to get this stuff going. Got it. And what were some of the other challenges that you experienced during that prototyping phase? And once you made it out of that prototyping phase, what did that look like? What defined success? Well, one of the biggest challenges is I think with AI, especially in this kind of new era of it, it's really easy to make an amazing demo that works on a cool cherry-picked example. And it's also just really easy to make good text, I would say. You can, in the space of one minute, spin up ChatGPT and ask it the right question and get a remarkable answer out of it. But I think there's two challenges. One of them is that that remarkable answer is often just text. And so how do you get an answer that is more than just text that actually incorporates images or some kind of like structure and layout? For us building a presentation tool, it wasn't enough to just get good text out. That was only a small part of the challenge of making good presentations. Especially because great presentations are often not super text heavy. They're kind of the opposite. They are remarkably brief and use other tools to get ideas across. The other one is that you have to handle just a huge range of different cases. So it's cool that your one example you put in worked, but how do you start to get lots of different examples working? And how do you find something that is defensive to many different use cases? How do you avoid over-promising what you're going to get? That's a lot of where the kind of UX side of things comes in. And so we kind of addressed each of those challenges separately. Like, how do you go beyond just text? We really focused on how do we speak to AI in a format that it can understand and we can understand that incorporates some of our structure of what a presentation might look like. So this includes things like images, tables, arranging things on the left and right side versus just top down on a slide. It actually really helped that we had taken this approach of building a medium that was not just a typical slide deck where you drag boxes around, but this hybrid of document and web page and presentation because it actually simplified the job for the AI. AIs can't really see, or I should say they couldn't at the time. There are new ones coming out that actually can see, so to speak. But at the time, they could only really write. And so you needed a way of representing all these things in text. And we went through a lot of different prototypes of how to actually model that before we started landing on some approaches that worked. And without getting too technical, a lot of the approaches that ended up working for us 
really involves trying to match the training data that these AIs have seen already. And what we know about these AIs is that they're trained on scraping just huge amounts of the internet. They've just read, you can think of like they read everything on Google, everything Google can see they have read. And so what is a lot of the internet made up of? If you're trying to make up your own kind of proprietary, unique format, the internet hasn't seen it. But what the internet has seen is like huge numbers of web pages. And so we ended up really leaning on uh, HTML, which is the language that most web pages are made in, and trying to get our AI to speak that with a lot of our own unique quirks to how we do it. So that worked really nicely for us. A lot of our work was not just about what the AI does, but what the user does when they first log in to give the AI something reasonable. And some simple examples of things we prototyped that we ended up keeping were the idea of just a one-line input box that's very constrained, where we say, just tell us a topic. We have since added the ability to do much more complicated stuff, upload a whole document or put in your own outline. But as a first version, a one-line topic was really robust. We were able to give a lot of guidance on what to do with that one-line topic. So almost no matter what you put in there, you would get something cool. We also had suggested topics. So what we learned from our kind of first round of onboarding was people would hear about this new tool, but they might not even have an immediate use case. And so when they logged in, we would show them five suggested topics for a presentation, and they could use one of those if they wanted. So that nudged them towards things that we knew would get a good result and that would showcase the strength of the tool so that for them, their second thing they would do, they would have more confidence that they could do something real. And then finally, we tried to put a lot of confirmation steps in the process of making one of these presentations. And so instead of just diving in and immediately making the presentation, we would actually first show you an outline. So you would say, I want a presentation about frogs. And that could mean anything. Who's the audience? What kind of tone are you going for? Do you want like the science of frogs or how to take care of them? And so before we would try to make a whole presentation, which would be slow and expensive, we would generate for you just uh, a couple bullet points of here's what we think you want to see. You tell us if this looks right. And if it's not, you can tweak it or try again. And I think those sort of confirmation steps really help at keeping AI on track with what the user is asking for. That's really interesting. So what I'm getting there is you're walking through the ideal output for the user getting the user's feedback throughout the process, just so you're not handing them something that's way off and then creating a negative experience, but instead having checkpoints to make sure that the logic that's building the final output is going down the right path. Yeah, totally. It's funny. One of the ideas that we coalesced on while we were going through this process of prototyping is it's a lot like the process of working with a human designer. And it's funny because the slide designer is a job. There are people who the thing they do all day is make like amazing looking PowerPoints. It's not a very common job. I don't think most people who make PowerPoints have access to a slide designer, but there's definitely people who do it. I've worked with a handful over the years. And it's funny when you work with a professional like that, or really any kind of talented designer who has a lot of different clients, they do a lot of these steps. They don't just go off and make the whole presentation and hand it back to you. They say, hey, before I ever actually generate anything, let's make sure we're on the same page. It sounds like what you're looking for is, and they'll do all these like silly little exercises where they'll have you do a mood board and they'll show you different visual styles and they'll say, is this the kind of thing you're thinking or is this the thing you're thinking? Even when you're working for yourself, uh, we don't always dive in and directly just write the content from the top. We often write an outline for ourselves or mock up a couple of the key templates that we'll use throughout. And this is true in almost any creative endeavor. The thing that has always surprised me as someone who's worked in software for a while, now working in AI, is that 
you have to stop thinking in kind of the software mindset and think more in the human mindset of like, how would a person do this? Because that's how these AIs work. They are mimicking what a person would do. And so if a person wouldn't just dive in and start writing immediately, then the AI probably won't be as good at that either. I remember reading recently about at this Google research paper where they tested just adding one phrase to the start of every prompt, which was take a deep breath. And literally just putting the phrase, take a deep breath before your prompt would get better results. That's preposterous to me. I don't think any of us really recognize what that means about how these AIs work under the hood, because it is so much more like talking to a human or even like talking to a toddler than it is like programming a computer. Yeah, I, I read that paper as well. It's, it's fascinating just thinking through why that actually helps the AI come up with a better answer. So some folks who are listening, they might be thinking that you give users the ability to provide feedback at every step and continue iterating until there's an ideal experience for the user. How do you define when you stop iterating on the feedback or does it continue indefinitely? Does that create more complexity in how you're setting up the application if you have these long chains of communication between the user and the AI? It's a really good question and it's actually exactly the kind of design question that we're still struggling with. If we index back to the original problem we were trying to solve when we started this, for us, it was really about onboarding. So it was about the first five-minute experience somebody would have in our app where they would make a decision of, do I keep investing time in this app or do I leave? I'm busy. And so for us, that was a really strong focusing lens. It wasn't even about what would get the highest quality. It's what will show you enough value in five minutes that you'll want to stick around. And so even though we did have a lot of these steps that were about confirming and checking, we couldn't have it go on forever. It, we had to get you to something shiny pretty quickly. And we really measure it in time. It's, can we get you to something cool in the space of two or three minutes? And we haven't done deep measurement on this, but I have no doubt that every minute we delay there is just a massive percent drop-off in the percent of people that actually get through that flow. Uh, but it's funny you ask that because now a lot of our focus with AI is not on onboarding. It's about creating a lot more power for the people that are already in the door. And for those people, I think they're actually much more tolerant of complexity. They want a lot more control. And so a lot of things that we're building now are about giving them way more knobs they can turn in terms of what the AI can do. So controlling the tone of voice, pasting in a much more detailed outline and getting the AI to follow it, giving you more control over like the visual style. We're planning to add way more of these controls. And if you overwhelm somebody with all those controls at the start, I think they would never actually stick through to see what's there on the other side. And so, you know, once again, for me, this feels like less of an AI challenge and more like a user experience challenge of understanding how much you can show off the power versus let people discover it. I think about a tool like PowerPoint or Microsoft Word, which are unbelievably complicated in terms of the number of things you can do. I mean, if you just open up one of those apps and count the buttons, there's 100 buttons on the screen at one time. And we only understand them because we all spent decades learning each of those buttons. Often we had a lot of time in school, but for newer age apps, we can't afford the same kind of learning curve. And so we have to slim things down. I would say that is the main constraint more so than the AI. Now, how are you ensuring that nothing breaks during the process of the user interacting with the AI. So obviously you're working with a tool that's creating non-deterministic outputs, which is the power of it, but it also creates a new set of challenges. How do you deal with that? Yeah, to be frank, we have not solved this yet. It is one of the just fundamental challenges of working with AI. I don't think anybody has solved this yet, including OpenAI, which is putting billions of dollars into like safety and alignment checks on all of their work. 
But there are a couple things that have worked for us that I can share. One of them is that we just do an awful lot of monitoring analytics to see what people are actually asking this thing. And we constantly just watch our support channels. So when people say the AI did something weird, we are just methodically trying to pin down why that happened, uh, trace what went wrong, and implement fixes. But there is this whack-a-mole quality where you worry that when you fix problem B, problem A is going to come back or problem C is going to come along instead. And so we haven't conquered that. A lot of it has really gone into prompt engineering for us. Every time we see these problems, we are trying to make our prompt a little bit smarter to handle those errors. We also do certain checks after the prompt runs. We try to detect certain kinds of common failures. And if we do, rerun those prompts. But I really think we're at only the most basic level and there's way more to be done here in terms of handling the unpredictability. Um, I'll just give one more example of this which you and I have talked about before, which is a thing that really surprised us when we launched our product with all this AI was it really blew up internationally. And so all of a sudden after we launched, we had people in China and Thailand and Colombia all using our product in different languages quite often in languages that nobody on our team even spoke. And we had never designed this thing or even thought about how this thing would work in other languages. But they just started doing it. For us, it was a really clear sign of demand when someone puts up with lots of failures and problems. But it also made us realize, oh, dang, we have to now get everything about this product to work in all these different languages. We were able to actually do a surprising amount of this just with prompting. And this isn't rocket science. A lot of it's saying, if the user asks a question in Chinese, respond in Chinese. And just tricks like that actually helped us. But there were so many surprises like this along the way where we had to just go through failures with a fine-tooth comb and look for common elements. What's been the biggest surprise of working with AI over the past several months now or biggest learnings? I'm still just in awe that it works, honestly. I've been curious about AI and interested in AI for probably 10 years now. I've worked in some sort of AI-ish products in the past, like search engines. And it used to just take so much careful work to get an AI to do one little narrow task. For example, recognizing a handwritten number as what digit it is. And so what blows my mind now is that we can take this product that we designed to work in English and just add the word right in Chinese. And now it works for like a whole new language. That is like totally unprecedented. And it really makes me feel like a lot of the challenges with AI are really like failures of imagination. We just haven't thought of what this thing can do. We haven't been creative enough about how to apply it. I honestly think that if all AI technology development just paused here, so no new models come out, no new technology is out there. We just have what we have now. We could spend five, 10 years just innovating on top of these tools we have, just catching up to what's already possible. And so it honestly breaks my brain to think about that's not what's going to happen. We're going to have GPT-5 and GPT-6 and Claude 47. And it's just keeping up with what's possible is a huge challenge. In your opinion, what does it take to succeed as an AI product? Is it any different than what it takes to succeed as a non-AI product? Taking maybe Gamma as an example, has the goalpost moved at all in terms of where you're aiming pre-AI versus post-AI? I think the basics are the same. You have to build something people really want, create magic, and find a way to get them coming back. I think AI helps with that, but it hasn't changed the fundamentals. But there are definitely some considerations where AI has totally changed them. One of them that I think is probably underrated is just like cost. So like running these models isn't cheap. And so I think there's this added dimension of how can you make a product people like, but how can you also serve it cost effectively? 
I think probably a lot of companies that are seeing success with AI are also losing a lot of money doing it because it just takes a lot to run these things. And so making that work cost effectively. And there's a lot of related considerations like that, like performance. Like when we first launched our product, the first version of it took over a minute before you would even see anything out of the deck you were generating. And lots of people just bailed during that minute, even though there was magic on the other side. A lot of our work has gone into just doing the same thing, but much more quickly and seamlessly. And yeah, I think everything we talked about too around sort of design and predictability and expectation setting, they create a lot of new challenges in making a successful AI product that were not as extreme as they were in the earlier times where you could mostly understand how your system would behave in a lot of different conditions. My next question is in terms of managing cost, performance, latency, what are some of the measures that you're taking from what you're able to disclose, obviously not sharing any secret sauce or anything like that, but is there anything that you found to be remarkably helpful in that capacity? I can share a couple of things in general that are working for us. One thing we found is that generally the more you can do in one prompt versus a lot of repeated prompts, the better. And so really trying to compress a lot of the magic you're doing into kind of the smallest possible representation is really good for both performance and cost. Also, to state the obvious, cheaper models are better in almost every way, except that they're dumber. And so the more you can do with prompt engineering, the less you need to rely on the big expensive models, which are both uh, quite costly, but also quite slow to run. A lot of things we're working on now is trying to be more intelligent about when to use a more expensive model or when to use a cheaper model. And I think there also is this flywheel effect where the more data that you gather and the more inputs you can get, the better position you're in to be able to then have your own fine-tuned models, which can run a little bit more cheaply. I think there's also just an even more basic aspect to this, which zooms back to before we even launched, which is how do you think about cost upfront when you're building a feature like this? For us, because we were focused on onboarding as the use case, we knew that most people who use this feature would never actually stick around and use the product for real, and they weren't going to be paying customers. And so we couldn't afford to be spending a ton of money on doing it. Uh, we knew we had to be able to do it cheaply. And so we really designed for costs from the start. And I don't know that's true of all AI companies today. I think many AI companies are just trying to make something magic happen. Uh, and by the way, they might be right. It's such a new space. We don't really know how it's going to shake out. One thing we know is that around the time we launched our product, OpenAI just cut the cost of GPT-3 by 10x. Obviously great for us. Yeah, it's not every day as a startup you get your cost cut by 90%. And that may just keep on happening. It may just be that we should all use the most premium stuff and cost will take care of itself. But our strategy has been the opposite. We have tried to be mindful of cost management from the very start. And I think it's actually helped us scale. Just to give maybe one number that puts it in context, Gamma has now generated 15 million uh, presentations with AI, which is a number that kind of blows my mind. And so I, I won't share what it costs us to run, but I'll just say, I think we have the difference between a dollar per presentation versus 10 cents versus one cent. You're talking about the difference between millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. It really makes an enormous difference once you get to scale. And the other takeaway I have from this is that AI products can really take off suddenly because the value prop is just so new and different than what was there before. You get this kind of remarkable viral word of mouth effect of how they spread. You mentioned Flywheel there. I'm, I'm curious to dig into that a little bit. There's companies out there that either have very valuable proprietary data sets that they want to figure out how do we leverage those to create some sort of competitive advantage. Is there a way that you think about capitalizing on those data advantages as a business in order to build this idea of a moat? You know, we are so early on in this journey that 
I think it's anybody's guess what kinds of data moats will or won't exist. I definitely hear some companies saying that all this data we're collecting is going to be this like ironclad wall that will protect us from competitors. To be honest, I'm pretty skeptical because the models themselves keep getting better so fast. So like in the old days of machine learning, when I worked at Microsoft, I worked on Bing and Bing was trying to compete with Google. And I think as everyone knows at the time, Google was better and Google was better not just because they had lots of great engineers working on the problem for a long time, but Google had a true data moat. Google just had this unbelievable number of users who were doing all these searches. And every time they clicked a search results, they got interesting, valuable data that they could use to actually train their search engine even better. And so for a company even as big as Microsoft to come and compete in that space, it wasn't enough to hire 3,000 engineers and have them do search engines smarter. They had to find a way to collect similar scale of data to Google or they could never compete. And a little side note, Microsoft ended up doing something that Google got really mad about, which was they used Internet Explorer to track what people were clicking on in Google to actually get training data they could use to train Bing. Google called Flow Play on this. You can draw your own conclusions about whether that was cool or not cool. But I think it really showcases what a data moat looks like. I'm not convinced that the same effect applies here. And the reason I'm not convinced is that the underlying foundation models are getting so much smarter, so much faster. We could train a you know fine-tuned model off of our own 15 million data points, but then a new GPT model comes along a year later and it just supersedes everything because of its kind of like increased intelligence. I do think things like fine-tuning have a role to play in managing costs. And we may see open source fine-tuning get so good that it's a big asset, but we're in more of a wait-and-see mindset. We are collecting all this data. We're hoping it's an asset, but we still feel like the real sort of moat is not so much about the data we collect. It's much more about the differentiated user experience and app we can build around that data. So what's the future of Gamma look like, John? So what's next for Gamma? You know, I mentioned earlier on that we are not just trying to create presentations, we're trying to be a new way to present ideas. And we really believe that a lot of what the soul of our company is about creating a new medium for expressing yourself and breaking down some of these traditional formats and ideas. And so we really have gotten our start and a lot of our virality from presentations. But if we look at actually how sort of our power users are using Gamma, it's often not like a traditional in-person slide deck presentation. It's much more often these hybrid things that combine aspects of a presentation and a web page and a doc. It's like a living proposal that you can put online or share with the client or put a little form on and collect information from. And surprisingly, our single biggest feature request after we launched was the ability to publish a Gamma as a website. So I want to put this on my domain. I want to actually use this as a site. And so we are really pursuing that. We are trying to make it so a Gamma can work anywhere. You can have your Gamma be a live presentation. You can download your Gamma as a PDF or even a PowerPoint file. Uh, and soon you can also turn your Gamma into a fully working website. And for many people, the challenges involved in making a website look a lot like the challenges in making a presentation. It's very time-consuming and laborious and brittle. And what do I even say on here? And so we think there's an opportunity to actually compete in both spaces and do some really cool stuff in the website space. So we'll have more on that coming soon. Very exciting. And one thing I'd like to ask the guests on the show is what their hottest AI take is. What is your most contrarian opinion? I think my contrarian take is that success in AI is not really about AI. What I mean by that is I don't think it's about who has like the best models or who's the best at writing prompts or whatever it is. It's about who can apply AI to their problems in the most meaningful way. 
That's why I think at Gamma, we really over-index on user experience and like front-end prototyping as a skill set. I think that's why we really believe our differentiation comes from what you do with the AI. We've been building lots of features that are not exactly pure AI things, but plug in the AI. I think for us, we are trying to make the best canvas for AI, knowing that a lot of the AI stuff will almost take care of itself. We are not trying to build a team of 50 machine learning engineers to crank 10% more performance out of the models or whatever it is. Very well said. Thanks so much, Jan. A lot of excellent knowledge shared during this conversation. Really excited to share it with our audience. Where can folks learn more about you, about Gamma, and about all the cool things that you're working on? Yeah, totally. I'm on Twitter as at, that's John Sense. It's J-O-N Sense. I guess it's called X now. And Gamma, you can be found at gamma.app, or you can just search Gamma Presentations, and you can sign up for free and give it a try. If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear from you on Twitter. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Thank you. Great to be here.